Hi everyone, this is Alicia Halliday and I'm the Chief Science Officer of the Autism Science Foundation. I'm proud to represent a group of scientists and clinicians, including myself, that wrote a guide on how to generate and interpret animal models for neurodevelopmental disorders. Animal models for autism are used because there's so little information on the circuitry of the brain in autism. They're also used because they're preclinical studies. They're used to test drugs and different therapies before they go on the market for people. Now, studying the brains of people with autism is important, but there's just not enough brain tissue. If you're against animal testing, I would ask myself if I've registered for more information about the autism brain net and how it can be used to better understand the brains of people with autism. Go to www.autismbrainnet.org. And also, you can't just give drugs that haven't been tested for safety and efficacy to a person. You have to look at it in an animal model first. Does it kill the liver? Does it shut down the kidneys? Does it have any unintended effects? Animal models that work, as well as other cellular models, are a huge part of the autism research discovery process. But instead of just looking at cells in a dish, which some people do and is very, very important, Animals do something that cells cannot. They show behavior. Mice and rats are pretty social. They exhibit social behavior. They can also show the other core feature of autism, which are restrictive and repetitive behaviors. Now, does that make them autistic? They can also show cognitive and motor deficits, hypersensitivity to stimuli, and other features that are not core, but are associated with autism. So what are the best models of autism and how should their behaviors be evaluated? What should be considered when choosing a model system and how do you ensure that another lab in another country will find the same results as you do so it can be replicable? That way you know your study isn't just a fluke. Animal studies right now have a huge problem with replicability and I'll talk about why in a minute. And it's really affecting drug development, and it's really affecting our understanding of the autism brain. In a study hot off the press from the journal Genes, Brains, and Behavior, the link is in the podcast summary, and it's open access. Scientists Jill Silverman, Stella Petkova, Ted Abel, Melissa Bauman, Ted Brodkin, Halla Haroni-Nicholas, and Marcus War, who are all animal model researchers, partnered with Audrey Thurm, Sarah Etheridge, and Michaela Soller on a paper that outlined what the state of the field around behavioral assays for autism are, whether it's accurate to use the word autism or something else, what standards should be used in reporting, and guidelines on how behavioral models should be examined and interpreted. I'll also say I was always on the paper As many of you know, I used to be an animal model researcher, and now I'm more a jack-of-all-trades, master of none, so to speak. So there are all sorts of animal models out there. Some use mutations in a gene. Some use environmental exposures like valproic acid or immune challenge during pregnancy. But very few look at gene-environment interactions, and as you know, that's another topic for discussion. 
So this group wanted to see what was going on with behavioral animal models of autism in the last five years. So what we did is collected publications using those behavioral assays of animal models. Now we could have used genetics or environmental factors, but we chose genetics and we chose genetic models that were of the top 26 genes identified in last year's Satterstrom paper because we were relatively sure that they have something to do with autism. Before we start discussing why use genetic models, the point was to do a brief snapshot of the science. And of those 26 genes, we found 148 articles and analyzed 69 of them if they used a behavioral assay. So that was more than enough for us to chew, and it was more than enough for us to make some pretty important findings or revelations about what's going on in autism research looking at behavior models. What we found was a little bit disturbing, though. Only half of the studies looked at measures of both social interaction and restrictive and repetitive behavior. Now, remember, a clinical diagnosis of autism uses both deficits of social interaction and the presence of restrictive and repetitive behavior. The variety of the social task was notable. Half of those that looked at social behaviors, which meant most of the studies overall because only some looked at repetitive behavior only, half looked at only social behaviors, but about another 40-some percent looked at both social and repetitive behaviors. So of the social behaviors, they used the three-chamber test, which is pretty common, plus maybe some other measure. Reporting of these findings was kind of shocking, too. While most of the studies reported sample size, you would think, only 71% reported the background strain in the animals that were generated. And this is really important. Think of the background strain as taking two different families with the same genetic mutation. You can see this in rare genetic diseases. Two families with the same genetic mutation may have completely different outcomes. They also could be totally different based on other genetics that was not known. Another thing that disturbed us was the age of the animal. Only 78% of studies reported it. For the other 22%, the age was unclear. That's completely unacceptable. Autism is a disorder that you're born with, and it changes over time, and things, things get more fluid. Things may, certain behaviors may improve, other behaviors may not. So it's completely unacceptable that we just study mice that are like, say, adults. I'll tell you right now, ASF is going to turn away applications for grants where the strain, the actual task, the sex, and the age of the animals is not reported in the application. Now let's get to the behavioral task. Now we wanted to make sure everyone knew if you want to study for social interaction in a particular model system, go for it. Then you're studying social interaction. You're not studying autism. That's okay. Just don't say you're studying autism. And also given the fact that autism is not seen in an animal, we suggest the term neurodevelopmental disorders rather than autism when talking about model systems. The behavioral features seen reflect neurodevelopmental disorders more accurately than they reflect autism. The other point we want to make is that scientists get too wrapped up in face validity. For example, if you run an experiment and you put two mice in a a box, and if one mouse runs away from the other mouse in that chamber, 
Is that called social avoidance? Is that similar to autism? Can you draw the line? Well, no. The line can be drawn to social avoidance if it's a standardized measure of social avoidance. Too many times authors observe interesting findings in animals housed alone or together or given the chance to interact, and they see behaviors that may have nothing to do with autism. They take seven different models of, say, social interaction, and they mix them together and then report them out differently. So face validity is what behaviors look like in autism in an animal model. This is important, but it's not where scientists should start. Scientists should start with construct validity. Is it a valid model? For example, those 26 genes in Satterstrom and those that are on level one of the Safari gene list, scientists know they contribute to autism. So start there. That has construct validity. And then look further down and see if there's face validity. The scientists on this panel that wrote this paper together all agreed that whether or not the biological underpinnings was linked to autism was more important than whether the behavior seen in these systems seemed to look like autism. And again, I keep saying autism, but we should really be saying neurodevelopmental disorders. How can scientists who breed different mutations of mice even be expected to look at behavior and interpret anything? Well, they shouldn't be expected to. So my next point is I want to stress this. Scientists can and should be good at a few things. They should be trained, but they should also be humble and open-minded enough to collaborate with behavioral neuroscience who spend their training and their careers understanding animal behavior, the biological background of these changes, and how to develop and build studies that will show or not show behavioral links to neurodevelopmental disorders. Listen, when I was examining behavioral effects of different genetic mutations of mice in a lab, do you think I was in charge of generating that line of mouse? Was I in charge of pulling out the genes and then inserting it in the egg? Oh no, I was not. Now I learned to do it and I was grateful to learn to do it and I got practice in all sorts of DNA techniques, which I am forever grateful, but nobody expected me to do it all. Scientists should be experts and also open to collaboration. To all of you mouse breeders out there, be open to talking to behavioral neuroscience. And behavioral neuroscience, take a lesson here. Don't think you know everything about the link between animal behavior and human behavior. Talk to and work with families with rare genetic diseases with or without autism, clinicians that help these families, and get as much information as you can about the nature of the behavior, why it emerges, and how it does or does not capture a feature of a neurodevelopmental disorder. The other thing is, I'll say again, is autism is not either social communication or repetitive behaviors. It's both. And there's a lot of things that go into someone with ASD, which brings me to number three. People are complex. Animal model is complex. So behavioral neuroscience needs to look beyond just autism as a specific behavior to more neurodevelopmental issues. And those neurodevelopmental issues include things across ages, not just at one thing. So try not to get in this trap of having a genetic mutation and then waiting for the animal to turn, say, three months of age when they're adults to look at things like motor skills, anxiety, and cognitive ability in addition to social interactions and repetitive behaviors. Let me repeat that. 
You can't just study animals and look at one endpoint. You need to start as early as possible. Some studies look at pups that are days old and they look at things like ultrasonic vocalizations, which is how they communicate with their mother. And then they follow them until weaning when they're able to do things like express social interaction differences. And then they wait a little longer to see if they're susceptible to restrictive and repetitive behaviors. It's not always where they end up at one place in time, but it's how they got there. Scientists need to design experiments appropriately, but they can be done and they need to report their findings in as much detail as they can. Why? So someone else can do the same thing and hopefully get the same result. And if they don't get the same result, why not? Is it because the animal model was invalid? Well, it can be a lot of other things, which is why behavioral neuroscience needs to continue with everyone in the project to systematically look at why there were differences in replication and what needs to be done. So what did this group recommend? First, we want to make sure that we're looking at neurodevelopmental disorders, and we want to make sure that animal model researchers make sure they test for cognitive and motor abilities. They are as important as some of the core autism features. Also, make sure scientists that you look at confounds. For example, if the animal doesn't move in an anxiety chamber, is it because they're anxious or do they have motor problems initiating movement? Third, rats are more social than mice, and everyone, while they would love to jump to monkeys as a model, scientists cannot afford, nor there is there time, to do everything in a monkey that you can do in a rat. Number four, it's also important to look for comorbidities. Number five, again, partner with behavioral scientists. And six, try to replicate everything you do. Don't just run a study and publish it once. Try to replicate it to show that you can do it in more than one batch. Now, these animal models are not for shits and giggles. Many drugs in the drug pipeline depend on accurate animal model data before they move to people. They may be moved ahead too soon or valuable therapeutics may be missed because of problems with the model systems. Also, while scientists think they know about the neural circuitry and understand the brains of people with autism, they really don't. And while a mouse does not have autism, a mouse can have disruption of key connections important for autism, which is why it's important to study animal models. Yes, rigorously and accurately, but also there's no lack of, of information that needs to be gathered from these model systems. Now, the journal is open access. It took a lot of time to write this, and I want to shout out to Jill Silverman, who took most of the writing responsibility on it. I also want to thank Jean's Brain and Behavior for publishing it. And if you're an animal model researcher, definitely read it if you attend on applying to ASF. Even if you intend on applying somewhere else, please look at it as a fantastic guideline of where to go, what to do, how to report, and Acknowledge the limitations of what you're doing. Thanks for listening this week. I hope this wasn't too boring for people who weren't necessarily interested in animal models. But as you can see, they're a topic that gets way too little conversation. Baby, I'm playing on you tonight. Hunt you down, eat you alive.